theyeshiva.net. Welcome. We're very grateful to have you here on our podcast. Thank you. Nice um, to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see nice you. It's a real treat. You. Yes. Likewise. It's good to see you. It's a real treat for both Ida and I to have the opportunity to talk at, with you and interview you today. Um, it's Thank special you. that we both know you on a personal level since your brother-in-law, just your awesome brother-in-law just married my daughter, Rosie, Mandy and Rosie, yeah. and your wife, Esther. Not your daughter, Thank your you. exceptional daughter. Thank you. Thanks so much. You have to be objective. I second that. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. And and I do I do agree. <laughs> um, and your wife, Esty, who's a good friend, is a great friend, and Eden and David are both friends and big fans of yours too. So we really value and appreciate this time with you and all your teachings on a public level as well. And no doubt many of our listeners that are listening today are big fans of yours too and are big listeners because uh, YY is a household name. But for those who don't know you and are listening, um, can you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners who might not be familiar with who you are, but I'm sure they will become very familiar after this episode. Thank you. That's very gracious and kind of you. I appreciate it. So my name is Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson. Some people call me YY, which was my mother-in-law's invention. Um, I guess Yosef Yitzchak was a little difficult, so she branded me YY. So, uh, and I guess it took off. Um, when people ask me why they call me YY, I say when I was born, some people said, why, why? And I'm trying to answer that question. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, it's a pr- it's appropriate. We have a lot of whys for you today. <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, I was born in uh, 1972 in Brooklyn, New York. Both of my parents ru- Russian immigrants who grew up in the communist era, in the Stalinist regime, and suffered terrible, terrible tyranny under the horrific conditions of uh, the Soviet Union of the 1930s and the purges. My my grandfather was arrested, sentenced to death, tortured, and then sent to uh, Stalin's gulag. But they did make it out after the Second World War with forged passports and ultimately made their way from the Soviet Union to uh, Poland and then France, Germany, displaced persons camps, and then ultimately to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, Canada and the United States, and my parents got married, and they raised a wonderful family, five children. My father was a journalist for around 50 years of his life, a real seasoned journalist. I grew up in a very, uh, I would say, a very interesting home, a colorful home, a diverse home with a lot of interesting guests and conversations. This was a time when Jewish journalism was very, very strong before the computer revolution, before the internet revolution. And for the last uh, two decades, a little more, I've had the privilege of traveling to uh, hundreds of communities around the globe, synagogues, Jewish centers, schools, universities, yeshivas, and lecturing to Jews and non-Jews from all different types of affiliations about, uh, but I guess, the blueprint of life presented by Torah and Judaism. So that's uh, some points about my life. 
I like that you talked about the background. I feel like normally when we ask, you know, can you introduce yourself? It's very much about, you know, what they're doing now and their own trajectory. And, and you started, you know, before you were born, because it's so important to understand, um, you know, who you are today. Yeah. You, you need to, we need some background information. Of course. Um, there's an, there's a, there's an incredible, there's an incredible line in the Talmud, which says, Tzibur loy meis, which means the community never dies. An individual passes on, but the collective body of the Jewish people, the same collective body that stood at Sinai and left Egypt and celebrated Hanukkah and Purim 2,500 years ago, that collective body called the Jewish people is still alive. So we are connected to each other, not just horizontally, but vertically. And today with genetics and epigenetics, we know that we're not just continuing the life of our ancestors. We, in many ways, we are, we embody the life of our ancestors. So if I don't know where I come from, it's very hard for me to know where I am and where I'm supposed to go. It's true. It's true. And I, and I think a lot of people are, you know, caught between wanting to make their ancestors, you know, proud and also wanting to do what they want to do. Um, and that kind of leads me to the, to our next question. Um, you, know, you wear so many hats. You do so many different things. You're, you know, a, a leader, a mentor, um, rabbi. You have a podcast, multiple, multiple podcasts, actually, on many different topics. And um, I, I just I wonder, is this something that you um, expected? Is it something that you foresaw might happen? Or was this did this come as a surprise to you that you are in you know the position that you're in today? Yeah, completely not expected, <laughs> completely not anticipated. I grew up uh, as a very dedicated and diligent student. I had the privilege of, uh, at a young age, of being on the team of the oral scribes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, who were charged with a very grueling mission, if you will, and that is to memorize and transcribe hour-long talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on Shabbos, Shabbat, and holidays when no recording devices are used in the Jewish world of obser- in the Jewish observant world, so this group had to memorize and transcribe these talks. I was really immersed in my youth in learning and more learning, learning and writing, and really delving into the scholarship of of Yiddishkeit, of Torah, and all of its facets and the teachings of the Rebbe. Uh, I completely did not uh, prepare or imagine or anticipate uh, what I'm doing today. And the way it actually happened was really, you know, people, it's not like one day I was standing in front of a burning bush and I heard a calling that said, you know, Rabbi YY, this is your, your job. But really organically, um, from the requests of people and seeing the opportunities, it really just emerged. I'm not going to say out of the blue, but it it really just emerged. What happened was I got a call one week from a rabbi in Highland Park in, in Chicago, a suburb of Chicago, very affluent community. And he said, I read, I read an article of yours that impressed me. I used to write a weekly column in my father's Yiddish newspaper. My father had a Yiddish newspaper. Could you come for a Shabbos to my community and speak? I'm like, no, you got the wrong guy. I don't, I'm not a speaker. I'm not, uh, I don't give speeches. I don't do Shabbatones. He says, just come. I'll pay the ticket. Just come speak to my shul. What's going to happen? Okay. So I came. 
I wasn't even married. I wasn't married. I was in my 20s. I was not married yet. And I came for Shabbos. And I spoke. And I guess people liked it. Because the next Shabbos, I got a call from another uh, another shul. And as they say, the rest is history. Wow. Wow. That is unbelievable. That um, you didn't see yourself as a speaker. And I feel like you're internationally recognized as someone who can communicate ideas so clearly verbally to others in a way that they connect to it. And, and it kind of reminds me of the uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. And we asked him a similar question. You know, did you expect to be in the position you're in today? And he said, there are two things that stood out. He said something similar to you and that absolutely not. He wanted to become an economist and he ended up becoming a rabbi, which is totally like, I guess, off the path of what he expected. Um, it turned out he ended up getting honorary doctorates from different universities. Um, so he ended up where he actually initially wanted to be, which it's interesting how life turns I listened to that path. I listened to that path. I listened to that podcast that you did with Rabbi Sachs. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you really had the privilege of really um, eliciting from him the last presentation, I think, that he gave during his lifetime, no? Yes, yeah. It was the last, one of the last time he spoke publicly. We know, yeah, it was, was, we know it was, we couldn't find anyone else who interviewed him after, but we do know it was definitely one of the last and well, it was a real it. gift it was a very, and an it honor. It was a very moving podcast. I found him to be extremely vulnerable in that podcast. And I right. guess it was like, I'm not going to call it his final will and testament, but, you know, he was apparently very ill. I didn't know about it. I guess you didn't know about it. So we I didn't know. When you hear it, when I was listening to it at the time, I told my wife, we were listening together. I'm like, you know, he is... He's being open in a way that I usually don't 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 hear him so open. So, I, you know, unfortunately, we understood later that this was literally like one of his last presentations. So, well, yeah, I, uh, that's a very powerful, very powerful. Idea. I'll tell you, you know, there's there's a, there's a very. Well, I just want to tell you that you should live a very long life, and you should also oh, be open with us. <laughs> 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 and vulnerable. <Yes. laughs> We, we can edit that part out if needed, don't worry. <laughs> it's fun. You don't have to edit. You know. This is the age when people are sick. This is the age that people are sick and tired of editing out things. They don't want to live edited lives. We have been taught for many years to edit our lives, to edit our emotions, to edit our hearts, to edit, to edit everything. It should just look good. But we live in a generation, really, where everyone is craving uh, connection and authenticity. Um, but there's something that that yeah, that you triggered in my mind. Uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, obviously, you know, uh, uh, kind and respectful and considerate of, of of people's feelings, but unfiltered in the sense of of real truth. You know, raw raw experience. Uh, you know, there's there's an, a lovely idea in the Talmud that says, you know, God loves. Ugly truths much more than beautiful lies. So, <laughs> That's great. Know, I love that. True. I like that. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a very powerful, very powerful. And God, the, the, the Talmud says that some people flatter God with beautiful uh, accolades. And he says, no, no, no. Tell me what you really think about me. <laughs> it's an incredible idea. The Talmud wow. says that two of the greatest prophets, yeah. Daniel, Daniel and Jeremiah, refused to call Hashem Hagibur Vahanorah. The mighty one and the awesome one. They said, we saw the destruction 
of the temple in 586 BCE. We saw the horrors. We saw the decimation. We cannot call God powerful when he was silent in that present, in the presence of that. And the Talmud says, how can they do this? And, and, and the answer is that God doesn't want flattery. And since they knew that the definition of Hashem is truth, they were not ready to say something that for them was not real. It's a very, very, very powerful, very, very powerful idea. I told once my students here, I said, you know, there's a scene, I think it's in one of Woody Allen's, pre- one of Woody Allen's uh, genius productions where this young, hip, uh, bright girl asks her very religious uncle, if you had to choose between God and truth, what would you choose? And the uncle says, of course I would choose God. And it demonstrates how a corrupt religion can become when God becomes something different than truth. Wow. Wow. It's true. It's, and we're going to talk about this. Yes, I actually... I just want to add one thing in terms of, of career and vocations. I think this is really relevant. It's relevant to me. I think it's relevant to every one of us who's listening. And that is that uh, in Hebrew, there are two words that are almost... that are identical and one is used for Moses, and one is used for, for ba- Balaam, the prophet Balaam. Vayikar and Vayikra. It says, God chanced upon Balaam. Vayikar Hashem el Bilam. And with Moses, it's the same word. It says, Vayikra Hashem el Moshe. God called out to Moses. We all experience different coincidences in life. Balaam looks at it as a coincidence. Vayikar. It's a coincidence. It just happened. Moses sees it as a calling. Vayikra. And that really creates the difference between two lives. It's looking at where you are, what your talents are, what the opportunities are, what the needs are, what people are looking for. And you just say, it's a coincidence. Or Moses' perspective is, no, see it, see it as a calling. So I could say in my own life, you know, things just started to develop. And then I realized the opportunity, the thirst, the yearning, uh, the longing of people. And then, you know, it, it didn't take time for me to realize this is not coincidental, that all my training in my youth was really ultimately to be able to respond to, to this to this calling. Can I tell you a very a very powerful anecdote that just left an impression on me? Please, yes. Um, the, begin, the beginning of the days of Corona, as you know, the death toll in New York was was mind staggering. It was beyond the hospital simply did not know what to do. There were not enough beds. There were not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough beds in the ICU. At that point, they thought they have to put everybody on ventilators. There were not enough ventilators. I saw an interview with a chief physician in a hospital in the Bronx where really hundreds of people have died from COVID in the early days. This is, this is March, April, before Passover last year, 2020. And this doctor, a female doctor, she was like running the ICU. She was coming out of, of one of the patients and a, and a TV crew interviewed her and they turned to her. She seemed exhausted, dejected, downtrodden, depleted. She was probably up who knows how long. I don't know if she slept in the previous week. They were trying frantically to save lives and, 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 and lives were just slipping away. It was, you know, it was so tragic and disastrous. So I saw this moment. The reporter looks at her and says, do you just want to give up? Do you just want to surrender? Are you just ready to break down and just run away? And she looked him in the eyes and she said, all my training over the last 40 years, 
medical school, 12 years, residency, four years, being a physician here in this hospital for decades. All of this was made for this moment. If I'm not going to rise to the occasion at this moment, then all my training and all my work all these years was really a waste of time. And it was, it was so moving to hear because that's what leadership is. Leadership is to realize that when you're facing a moment of urgency and of crisis, instead of running away, you know, running to the hills saying, it's not for me, I'm this, and dealing with my, you know, surrendering to my inferiority complexes and insecurities that I and many of us have, it's really that moment to say, no, this, this is the moment. Everything you learned till now was for this moment to be able to face it and to bring light into this darkness. Wow, that's wow. That yeah, that's unbelievable and and so true. So true. That it's really in the difficult moments when when we first of all when we learn most and when we, you know, and it's very much connected to the Hashacha Pratis is that everything that's happening is not coincidental. You know, it's it's happening for a reason. And yeah. And and what you say Yeah, Yeah. And what you say also reminds me, as we were talking about Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that um, the Rebbe had said to him, you don't find yourself in a situation, you put yourself in a situation. And um, what you're saying Which very much relates to that. that he, shared, yes. he shared that with you on the podcast. There is, a, there is, there is, a, there is an essay I, I read from Rabbi Sachs that really cuts to the heart of this. I've spoken about it over many years, uh, throughout many years on Purim. Esther, Queen Esther, does not want to go plead with her husband on behalf of the Jewish people because she says, my husband is a Persian tyrant. You go in without permission, you come out with a head shorter. And he did not summon me to the palace for 30 days. And Mordechai tells Esther those words, Mi Who knows if it's not for this moment that you have become a queen many, many years ago. In other words, Mordechai is telling Esther, this is the moment for which you were chosen to become the queen of the Persian Empire, the wife of Ahasuerus. And I think, you know, in all of us, in our own micro or macro ways, we have to look at ourselves and say, everything that I have learned till this point it's it's laes kazais. It's for this moment when I feel I can I can bring something. I can bring some some relief, some clarity, some love, some light, right. some hope. This is the- so well. You've spoken about two very important um, issues: speaking truth and also taking an opportunity to share it. And we would be remiss if we didn't say something about the state of our world right now and all the chaos that's going on in Israel. And we're seeing a lot of hate and conflicting reports with people spewing venom um, at each other on social media. And as a peaceful plat- platform that promotes good vibes, that we try to promote good vibes and positive energy, you we do, try to steer clear. You, you do, <laughs> we you hope that, that's a goal, but we, we try to steer clear of controversy. But like at the same time, we feel compelled to stand up for what we believe in. And we see others speaking out and standing up for what they believe is right. And the ones who are quiet are often seen as careless or ignorant. So we are conflicted about how to approach this, especially in light of what you're saying right now. 
And as people, we don't like controversy, yet at the same time, we believe um, with conviction. And we want, you know, at the same time, we believe in conviction, with conviction and truth. And do we speak up or avoid topics that are controversial? We don't want to ignore important issues, but we also want to maintain the positive energy on the platform. Like, what is... What is the best way to be effective in these kind of situations in general? It's, 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 it's really a great question. Positive energy should always be maintained because our objective, our goal in life is to bring positivity into every situation. But positivity does not mean to ignore a very, very painful reality and to stare it in the eyes and to call a spade a spade. And it, it is important not to allow ourselves to, uh, you know, get into arguments and confrontations that are just ineffective, that become screaming matches where I'm not interested in your position, you're not interested in my position. I just want to come out with the upper hand and tell everybody that you're wrong and I'm right because those debates are usually ineffective. But from a very humble and positive an authentic place of caring, a person ought never, ever to compromise on unwavering convictions, especially when we're dealing with life and death situations. If somebody were to ask me, what's the most sacred value that makes a society viable? If, if, if you, Ida, if you, Rivka, uh, Mrs. Schattenstein, Mrs. Krinsky, if, if, if I were to ask you this question or any one of your listeners, what is that value that I, we have to teach our children to make society the most livable in? And we all know the answer. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. The sacredness of life. If life is not sacred, if the dignity of a person could be compromised, if saying to myself, because you're not part of my family or my nation or my tribe or my culture or my religion or my territory, therefore I can be a bigot towards you. I can discriminate against you. Never mind, I can call for genocide. Then we lose the foundations of any viable society in which we can create a positive change, in which we can communicate, in which we can respect each other. So when somebody does not speak out about the attempts of genocide, a group that calls openly for genocide of men, women, and children, then we lose the very fabric of having any ability to build society. Today there is conversation about, people say, we're asking Israel and Hamas to both respect each other, show restraint, and both sides have to realize that coexistence is so important. Beautiful flowery words, but very, very lethal, because think about if somebody in 1945, in 1944, 1945, when, when England, when Russia, when America were trying to defeat Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich, if some sophisticated, uh, positive, loving individual would stand up and say, we call on both sides to show consideration and constraints. How grotesque such a request is. Hitler wanted genocide. The Americans and the English, and at that time the Soviets, were trying to defeat him. They weren't trying to take revenge and destroy Germany. They were trying to stop a genocide. That is really what was going on. So now imagine, Rivka, if somebody starts shooting missiles into my home, 
And literally, children are being murdered. So I go to that home to try to stop it. And somebody says, no, 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 you have to show restraint. You have to show restraint. I'm not here to fight anybody or take revenge. I just want the rock to stop so that innocent people don't die. I think that's the perspective that if people do not understand this, do not appreciate this, we are undermining the ability for any society, Jewish society, Israeli society, Arab society, we're depriving Arab children of a future when they're growing up in a society that doesn't value their own lives and are ready to launch rockets from heavily populated areas with children knowing that Israel is going to have to try to stop it to protect their society and people are going to die. The the, the level of of moral depravity here and cruelty and sadism is so profound that if we want to build any positive society and we want to introduce any positive vibe, if we as individuals and as people and as politicians and as journalists and laymen and leaders alike cannot stand up to this with unwavering clarity, that we become accomplices to allowing this type of violence and bloodshed that is based literally on genocide to continue and thrive. When we hear the shouts from the river to the sea, let Palestine be free, it's a call for genocide. It's a call for the murder of 6.6 million Jews, men, women, and children. So we, 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 we have no choice. We're pained by the fact that this is what we have to talk about. But this is the basis of any future freedom and, and, and liberty and life for any society, Jew and Arab alike. Yeah. I wish, I wish that more people could, you know, saw things that way. I think social media has really polluted, um, the, our sense of reality, you know, and that people are kind of saying things, assuming that what they're saying is legitimate. Especially people in, in you, you see it in Hollywood a lot, um, you know, and uh, the truth gets skewed a little bit, and people really don't know yes. anymore what to it, say. And yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's horrible. I, I always yeah. give the example: terror is like a cancer. Terror is like a cancer. Imagine somebody has cancer. They come to the doctor. The doctor says you have cancer in the stomach. Could we? Doctor says we have to cut it out. He says no, no, no. Coexistence. Let's leave the cancer in the stomach and let the cancer not bother the rest of the body. The problem is, if you leave the cancer in the stomach, God forbid it's going to spread, and the end of that story is death. Terror is a cancer. It doesn't want to remain in one place. It wants to inflict untold suffering and damage on every child, woman, and man. If you don't uproot it, if you're compassionate towards terror, you're displaying the worst cruelty to innocent people, and I, it's it, 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 it's unfathomable to me when people look at the reality. And let's say you yes. disagree with a lot of policies in Israel. That's fine. But we all, many of us, disagree with different policies of Israel. But you have people, Hamas and Gaza, launching not hundreds, thousands and thousands of rockets, not asking where they're going to fall. The intention is to kill as many children as possible. What is Israel supposed to do if not stop the rockets and protect? But when Israel demolishes a building, they make sure everybody gets evacuated. And then they're attacked for their, for mistakes that happen because they're trying to defend their country. They're attacked for missiles that landed in Gaza from Hamas and killed their own children. And Israel is to blame. For Hamas, it's win-win. They don't care if their children die. 
We send missiles to Israel. They know Israel is going to have to defend itself. Some Arabs and children in Gaza are going to die, sadly and unfortunately. For them, it's win-win. We show that Israel is killing children. And we in America, we in America are duped. We get abducted by that indoctrination that allows literally genocide to happen and poor Arab children in Gaza used as missiles. Missiles for the propaganda to continue this sadistic bloodshed. It's unfathomable for people who care about Arabs. Forget if you care about Jews. If you care about Arab children, you should be alarmed at what Hamas allows to happen to their own own children. They don't fight on the front lines. They fight from schools and hospitals and universities. Where and we are alarmed and we, we agree with we, I actually agree with every word you're sharing here, and I know that Ida does too. Um, and the fact is that we are not politicians and we aren't in Israel and we are here. We, what we're asking you is what is the best way that we can be effective? What can we do? And I think, I think there's, there's, I think, you know, these, these battles have to be fought on two fronts. I think number one, there is this, this, the spiritual battle. And number two, there is the PR battle. I think on the PR battle, I think every single person who has influence, and today every person has influence, needs to really educate themselves about the realities of the Middle East, the realities of Israel. Israel is not a perfect country. Israel has a lot of flaws, and I'm sure they make many mistakes. But people have to be able to really educate themselves and become spokesmen and spokeswomen, in this case, of truth, of honesty, and not be bullied by slogans and statements that sound so kind and loving and liberal and progressive, but really underlying it are filled with such a lack of understanding and sensitivity to human life. I think every single one of us must use our pockets, our pens, our mouths, our our outlets, every outlet that we have in order to teach, to educate, to say the truth, to become ambassadors of truth in our world. I think that is so important. And to be able to stand up to lies and to deception. That's number one. And I think people of influence, especially Jews of influence, instead of ducking, they should stand up. They should stand up for the truth. They should stand up for their brothers and sisters, millions of innocent people endangered. Jews have to stop um, ducking and surrendering to this inferiority complex. And I want to you know, make believe that I'm the most progressive uh, uh, carrier of of the flag of, of humanness and sensitivity. Yes, you are supposed to carry the flag of humanness and sensitivity, and that's why you should stand up to such type of bloodshed. That's number one. And I think number two, equally important, is the spiritual response. And that is, I think each and every one of us, you know, all the Jews are, the Talmud says, we're all limbs of one body. And when you exercise one limb the entire body is stronger. It's not like I'm exercising my back or I'm exercising my torso, I'm exercising my legs. It affects only that limb. It's one organic connection. We are all deeply connected to each other, horizontally and vertically in this generation and previous generations. And I think, therefore, when any of us strengthens our own inner connection to ourselves, to our people, to our God, to our history, to our Torah, to our homeland, it affects all of our people. And I think it's so important to educate a generation of young Jews who are proud ambassadors of their Jewishness. The, as Rabbi Sachs would always say, the world respects Jews who respect 
themselves and their Judaism. The world is embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by themselves and their Judaism. I think a major part of the issue here is that we, Jews, in Israel and in diaspora, often lack the courage and the conviction to be able to be decisive and know what is true and what is false. During the Second World War, there was no, there was no ambiguity. It was very clear what is good and what is evil. During the Six Day War, it was very clear what is good, what is evil. During the Yom Kippur War, it was very clear what is good, what is evil. Today, people are confused. We need to educate a generation of Jews who have internal confidence, who have internal pride, who have internal dignity, who are ready to stand up to falsehood and state the truth unequivocally absolutely, unapologetically, and you know what happens? The world will listen. The world will respect you. People ultimately like truth. It's true. I actually heard just recently, I think on a podcast, that if you're with the majority, you should just start questioning yourself. And I think it applies here. Rivka, you know, I think Rivka and I were asking this question because we don't like confrontation. But just because we don't like confrontation doesn't mean that we can't speak a truth, right? And we, and avoid the fighting part, right? I think I feel like we're, we were associating, you know, standing. I actually, up for- I actually don't mind confrontation, but I don't like the way it's it, it is on social media. It gives me a lot of uh, just. There's a lot of hate, and there's a lot of just spewing hatred. And listen, listen. Um, we're trying to all, find a better I, way. The other, <laughs> the other day, the other day, I was flying to Florida with my wife, my dear wife Esty, and we were in the airport. And we asked for directions to the escalator to get down to go to the gate. And we see there's a mob of people, literally hundreds and hundreds of people going to the escalator. And then we look and we see that there is another escalator further down that didn't even have one person. So my wife turns to me and says, look, people just love to follow. Hundreds and packed, waiting a line to get down the escalator. Because if that's what everybody is doing, that's what I do. It's so important to be able to think for yourself. There's an escalator that's vacant. Use it. (laughs) Use it. So that's number one. Number two, the art, one of the important qualities in life is to disagree without becoming disagreeable. And by the way, it begins with marriage. (laughs) Any marriage of two healthy people has lots of disagreements, okay? And that's the fact. At least most marriages. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. Can we disagree with respect? Can we disagree without accusing each other of being a horrible person just because you disagree with me? Now, certainly it's true in a marriage, but it's also true in all types of debates that we have with people. The problem in so many debates is It becomes personal. I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm becoming defensive. I accuse you of being a horrible, horrible, horrible person. You're either encouraging apartheid or you're encouraging murder. You're either encouraging terrorism or you're encouraging indiscriminate revenge. Instead of really not allowing my ego to get into the argument. What happens is my ego and insecurity takes over the argument and it's not a conversation anymore. So it's very important. I could always share my position. But number one, don't demonize the other person who's arguing with you because you're not going to get anywhere. It's irrelevant. And also, there's probably no need to demonize him or her. He may have very good intentions, even if he or she is wrong, number one. Number two, don't allow your ego or my ego or insecurity to take over the narrative. 
really come from a much deeper, pure, idealistic place. And number three, don't try to be right. (laughs) Try to be effective. One of my mentors once told me, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, you lecture. When people ask a question, what do you do? I say, I try to answer the question. He said, bad choice. Don't answer the question. Answer the person. Now, what that means is, of course you should answer the question. But more important than answering the question is answering the person. Somebody comes to me and says, why did my mother die? Why did my brother die? Why did my father die? You think they want you to answer the question? Do I even have an answer to the question? I have to always think about the person who's asking the question. So when it comes to these conversations, it's so important not just to answer the question so I can give an answer, but to really try to be effective and communicate to the people so that so that they understand. I have a friend. He's a Chabad rabbi at Stanford University. His name is Rabbi Greenberg. And he told me, Stanford is what you would call a very liberal university, a lot of anti-Israel sentiments. And he says he gets up at a lecture. He's speaking about Israel. A student gets up and says, why is Israel involved in ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian population? Which our own congresswoman accused Israel just this week of ethnic cleansing in Gaza. This is what he asks the rabbi. What do you answer? You say, Israel is not involved in ethnic cleansing. They are. You're brainwashed. You're brainwashed. You're brainwashed. You're brainwashed. We're all brainwashed. Okay, end of the conversation. We're done. The rabbi looked at the student and he says, it's a wonderful question. I have another question. I have another question. Why do you say Israel is involved in ethnic cleansing? He said, well, look, children die every day. These children died. These children died. Look at this story, that story. This is ethnic cleansing. He said, okay, I have one to ask another question. Why did you murder your grandmother? He says, Rabbi, what? Why did you murder your grandmother? He says, I never murdered my grandmother. He says, wait, wait, wait. Is your grandmother dead? Yes, my grandmother. Oh, so you murdered her. No, no, she's dead, but I didn't murder her. Oh, so you mean she's dead is not a proof that you murdered her? Well, that's what's happening here. You come to Israel and you say, why did you murder your grandmother? Look, children are dying in Gaza. You must have murdered them. Wait, 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 wait. These paradigms are so erroneous. He helped the student realize, of course, there is a horrible situation in Gaza. Of course, his grandmother died, but he's not the murderer of his grandmother. Can you really be reflective and understand how his grandmother died? He was not the killer. So you have to learn how to communicate in a way that people who come from a different persuasion may be able to listen. Sometimes they're not ready. Sometimes people are not ready to listen, and then it's pointless. (laughs) Then it's pointless. Then pray to God and ask God to help all of us expand our horizons and open ourselves up to truth. But the most important thing is when you're internally confident and decisive, not in an arrogant way, but in a humble way coming from the conviction that life is sacred. And the biggest priority that Israel or any other country has is to protect the life of the innocent, then people respect you. I feel very bad. I told this to the chief rabbi of Israel yesterday. I had an hour conversation with Chief Rabbi Lau yesterday, just yesterday in the morning on Zoom in Hebrew. And it's out there. It's it's one of the podcasts in Hebrew. 
And, uh, and I told them, I said, Rabbi Lau, we spoke about the war in Israel. They call it protests. It's a declaration of war. It's not protest. And I said, I, 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 I hate to say this. Israel is such a talented nation. You don't have decent spokesmen in the United States of America. Israel does not have powerful spokesmen who can stand up, male or female, always better female because they have a way with words, to articulate truth. Unfortunately, we have a congresswoman with the gift of gab who, who creates this commotion and everybody's flocking to it. Israel needs these types of, of voices that we lack. So we need education. We need to educate ourselves and we need, we need to be in touch and with truth others. and share truth and educate others. And I guess that is not one way. Not be apologetic and not be apologetic for holding on to our most sacred values. Because when we have that inner conviction, other people come to respect it and learn it. But not get into personal fights and debates because they're pointless. We want to be effective. We don't want to be right. I don't want to be right. In Hebrew, there's an expression, be wise, don't be right. <laughs> this has so many applications in, in, in so many different areas, not just with peace, but with, in, in marriage and in, in education. I mean, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? I love that. I love that. Yeah. And answering, and an, not just answering the question, but answering the person. That one, we have to talk about that person, a what, little bit. Yeah. What, what, what happens is we get into a conversation. You start arguing with me and I'm not listening to your words anymore. You just triggered my traumas. <laughs> I feel unloved. I feel disrespected. I feel I don't have dignity. You don't like me. You don't this. And now I'm not responding to your words. I'm responding to my own inner trauma from the age of four years old. We're not talking anymore. I'm talking to my trauma. Now you're talking to your trauma. We're not talking to each other anymore. Can I really, can I really yeah, identify I my pain and, and have compassion for it? Yes, you just did trigger my trauma. And I do want to scream at you of how horrible you are. But essentially, I'm going to deal with that wherever I'm going to deal with it. But now I want to really try to communicate and give you the benefit of the doubt. I think if couples would learn to do this, we would also have better marriages. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I think you've shared some answers to some more of our questions, but maybe you have something further to share on that. Because um, we wanted you to point out something or things that people do in their lives that promote positive change and growth. Or are there any specific methods you believe are helpful when people come to you for guidance or advice? You shared some of that now, but maybe you have something further to share with us. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, uh, some points that I often share with people is, number one, we really have to have people that we can speak to that can help us become aware of what is going on in our lives, in our minds. Whatever that looks like for you. Somebody I trust, somebody who knows me, somebody who I'm going to truly listen to, and can really help me give the answers to tough questions. For example, why when my husband makes this and this comment, or my wife makes this and this comment, do I always find myself getting angry already for 20 years, for 30 years, for 10 years, for 15 years? Why do I space out? Can I, can I figure out the patterns of my brain? Can I see what I'm dealing with? The gift of self-awareness and having somebody to point out things, somebody who's obviously keen and perceptive and somebody who knows you, trusts you, whatever that is, a great friend, a confidant, a, a mentor, a therapist, a coach, whatever that is, 
but somebody who I could really listen to. You see, one of the biggest challenges of many of us is I may have trauma, I may have setbacks, but I'm not even aware of how much of a victim I am to those traps in my mind. I just follow the trajectory and I'm emotionally responding to life the way I did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and it becomes normal. I don't even know of another option. My wife says this, and this is how I respond. My husband says this, is how I respond. My teenage daughter or son says this, and this is how I respond. And we just fall into this to this trajectory that is fixed, and it's really an emotional trap. I never get to see myself from a different perspective. And it's very hard for people because this is not about intellectual conversations or awareness. It's about what is my visceral gut reaction to things. You know, I can hear the most brilliant lecture in the world about self-help and growth and honesty and awareness and neuroplasticity and somatic therapy and releasing stress and the body holds the score. And I could know it all in an encyclopedic fashion. The problem is I know it here. But my amygdala, my limbic brain, my reptilian brain is still stuck. (laughs) It's still trapped in my traumas. So to be able to have somebody with whom I can really be open and trusting and I could truly listen to what they're saying and allow them to challenge me in my core and open myself up to the possibility that I am so stuck, I'm stuck in anger, I'm stuck in frustration and resentment, I'm stuck in guilt, I'm stuck in loneliness, in fear, in insecurity, I'm stuck in enormous pain, in an enormous place of mistrust, I'm just stuck. And my responses are so limited. The moment I could begin to get awareness of those patterns, I can already set myself free. And, and you're, so that's one, I think. And you're saying the way to do that is through being open with somebody that you trust. I think one of the ways of doing that is being open with somebody. I think the first and foremost prerequisite is I have to be ready. If I'm not ready, you know, uh, sometimes people come to me for advice and sometimes I'll turn to the guy and say, listen, before I speak, I want to ask you a question. Do you want to hear the truth or do you want to hear what you want to hear? And of course, everybody says, oh, of course I want to hear the truth. Of course I want to hear the truth. So then I tell him the truth (laughs) and he doesn't speak to me for a couple of months, you know? So uh, it's like, do I really want to hear the truth? Do I really want to hear the truth? Come on. Of course, I say I want to hear the truth, but who wants to hear the truth? In fact, if somebody tells me they want to hear the truth, I tell them, you're crazy. You really want to hear the truth? Who who wants to hear the truth? It's not easy to hear. If you want to change, if you want to change, you want to hear the truth. Yeah, and and I could fool the world. I could smile to the world. I could come to the bar mitzvahs and smile. I can, I can eat sushi and, and, you know, and, and put up, put up a nice show. We're talented people, you know, we Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardic Jews and Jews of all demographics. (laughs) We have learned the game of survival very well. But when I face the mirror, the mirror is going to talk back to me. <laughs> and the mirror is going to say, you know, you could fool the world, but you can't fool me. You can't fool your neshama. You can't fool your soul. I can't fool God, and I can't fool my inner my inner core. So it, that, that openness, the challenge here is that with real trauma, and so many of us are suffering from traumas, we don't know that we don't know. If my trauma has taken root, I don't know how bad it is, because that's who I am. That's who I have become. So I have to really look at my responses. And if I'm feeling miserable, if I'm always getting angry, if I'm always having the same response to situations, 
that don't don't warrant that. If I'm always blaming my spouse for everything bad in my life, then it's time to look into myself and say, am I just a miserable, traumatized person who is stuck and nothing will ever be good enough and I will blame the whole world besides myself? These are moments of deep honesty and vulnerability and they come with a lot of grief. Grief for a life that has been painful. Grief for all the opportunities that have been squandered. Grief for a relationship that could never be realized. And there's a lot of tears over there, but they it becomes a catalyst for recovery. I think that's a very important quality in life. I would just mention fast two other things, and that is I think it's important for people to learn. I think to learn texts, books, teachers, and mentors that broaden your horizons. Uh, and we're talking, you know, in terms of, of, of the Jewish people, I think the texts of Jewish spirituality, um, uh, call it what I would, you know, what's known, what's known today as Hasidus or Hasidism, I find to be life-changing. If you have a good teacher or a good mentor, who teaches you how to apply these concepts, because what they do for me is they just always challenge me to be able to see the spiritual, organic oneness of the universe and of me as part of the universe. And it just gives a perspective that allows one to taste freedom. It emancipates one from the shackles in which we live in the shackles of cynicism and fear and desperation and negativity and toxicity. So I would encourage that, especially if you have, if you're sensitive and, and you're spiritual. I think we, we need in our life to learn books and texts that give us a taste of infinity. The last thing I would say is when Moses wants to count the Jews, God says, don't count the Jews. They have to give a contribution. Zayitnu. And you count the contributions. Why? The answer is when you start counting yourself and you want to figure out your value just from looking at yourself, it can get very depressing. I can look in the mirror and say, I'm an imposter. I'm, I'm impossible. You want to know your value? You want to be counted? Give. Zayitnu. When you give, you see yourself in a new way. So I would always tell everybody, wherever you are in life, Sometime every day, dedicate to give. It could be calling somebody who needs a little inspiration. It could be involved in a project, in a charity, in an organization, in a movement, in a group. Whatever it is, but something in which I use my mind, my soul to give to people, to lift up hearts, to kindle sparks, to embrace souls, to give hope, to give love, to help in any way I can, everyone is an influencer in their own way. I think when I do that, there's an energy of inner goodness that is unleashed. Yeah, wow, those are all... So being in touch with the, the truth step, and being and, on the and wanting to change, wanting to change and being open to listening to what the truth is and having someone good to talk to, to actually... Yeah, and, that and, actually is going to listen examine, and internalize. Courage yeah. to examine, having the courage to examine... What is happening? I remember I was once sitting with a mentor and we were discussing about a painful situation that I was experiencing in my life. And he asked me a question and I didn't answer. I was just silent. And he looked at me and he said, so you're very angry, huh? That's why you're not answering? And 
I stopped, I took a breath, a deep breath, and I said, you know, I did not realize that I was angry till that moment. I was so angry that I repressed it or I suppressed it. I did not realize that I was angry. In other words, if you would ask me to be honest with myself, I would tell you I'm not angry because I did not have the courage. I was too afraid to admit to myself that I'm feeling anger. It's too humiliating. Me? Rabbi YY is feeling anger? I'm a good guy. I'm a worked out guy. I'm not feeling anger. I'm not this egotistical, insecure, arrogant, angry person. I was feeling anger. I was feeling anger. I was so angry that I couldn't admit that I'm angry. <laughs> That's how angry I was. You understand? It's a deeper level of anger. <laughs> I was so angry that I couldn't tell myself I'm angry. You know, it wasn't just I missed my flight and I'm angry for 30 minutes and I'm angry at the airport and I'm closing up Kennedy Airport. I'm going to sue the airline. You know, you get angry for half an hour and, you know, until, until you find some kosher food in the airport and, and, you know, you satiate your hunger and you get on another plane and all that. And it was a very, very deep anger. And I have to say, when I open myself to that, up to that truth, I can ask myself, why am I angry? Why? Because anger is a secondary emotion. Anger, in 95% of cases, is a cover-up. <laughs> anger covers up a deeper emotion. There's always something right. under the anger. I'm angry at you, I'm angry at somebody. Under that anger, there's pain, there's loneliness, there's hurt. We don't like saying it because it's much easier to be angry at you than to say, I'm in pain, <laughs> I'm hurt. But when I can acknowledge that I'm angry, I can also start acknowledging and asking why am I angry? There's pain here. And when I can acknowledge the pain, I can start doing things to address it. And that becomes a game changer. And every one of us in our lives has this. Uh, when you said anger is a secondary emotion, I actually, I once heard um, that about laziness, that laziness is a secondary emotion. And it was in relation to um, a student in, in school who was not interested in learning. And, you know, the teacher was saying this child is lazy. Um, and then there was a back and forth. And the question was, well, is he really lazy? And so the, the, um, the understanding was that he isn't lazy because if you tell him he's going to Orlando tomorrow morning and he has to be up at 5 a.m., he's going to be bright eyed, bushy tailed at 5 a.m. if he needs to be. So the question is, what's going on? Um, that he's appearing lazy externally. And so, and I feel like we were going to ask you about, you know, your stance on education, on the state of our, um, of our educational system today, not just in our world, but in, even in the greater world, there's a lot of internal um, truths that haven't been acknowledged yet. And, you know, and I know that you mentor many people, students, parents alike. And I just wonder, like, what is your view on the, the, the state of our educational system? But also, like, if there's some, if there was a message that you could send to either to parents or to educators um, like, what would you tell them based on everything that you know and have spoken about in education? Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's such an important and wonderful question. You know, I think today we know that at least one of the most important things is to be able to make sure what, uh, you know, some of the great therapists call the four S's, right? That our children feel safe, seen, secure, and soothed. Those four S's are critical. A child needs to be able to feel safe at home, 
and in school. A child has to be able to feel secure at home and in school. A child has to be able to feel seen. I'm seen, I'm noticed. And finally, I'm soothed when there is pain, when there is agony. I think it's so important to be able to cultivate deep emotional connection. Connection is the key. Today, there's a lot of conversation about attachment disorder. You know, we don't feel attached. We never had healthy attachments. Our primal attachments were wounded. I read, uh, I read a paper, an incredible paper about a research of psychology. She said, the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. Proof? Everybody has a grandmother, right? Who broke a hip, 86 years old, ended up in the hospital. They gave her heroin. She should have come out three weeks later addicted to heroin. She does not. You know why? Because she has a bunch of grandchildren jumping on her, kissing her and embracing her. The antithesis to addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. When I feel connected, when I have that dignity, that value of being in strong relationships, of loving and being loved because I'm safe, I feel secure, see and soothed. It is so important. It helps a child cultivate a sense of inner confidence, a sense a sense of inner happiness. So I think that's one very important message for all of us, especially for mothers and fathers. We need to be emotionally connected with our children, you know, as much. Yeah, sometimes sometimes the school is not has not got the same that same connection, the connection we would like them to ha- the school to have with the right. children or for them to be able right. to be seen. So it's you know, how do we I guess we have to balance that with extra love and extra connection. <laughs> Yes, I, I was once in California, and I remember I met I met a uh, a principal. I met a, a, I met a principal of a school, and I saw that his rapport with the kids was very powerful. And I turned to him and I said, "Wow, who taught that to you?" This was like fifteen years ago. He was very warm and just emotionally loving, and the kids you could see that. You know, I once heard a definition. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, my mind works sometimes in different ways. So I once saw a composer and a conductor, a Jewish conductor in Boston, and somebody interviewed him, and they asked him, they asked him, how do you know you're doing a good job? And he said, when I inspire the people, and I look into their eyes, and I could see that their eyes are on fire, I know I'm doing a good job. So I saw this educator and I saw that he looked the children in the eyes and there was, there was a brightness that emerged when they saw him. So I asked him, how did you learn this? And he told me before I went into education, I asked myself, was there ever a teacher who made an impact on me that I remembered him afterwards? And I remembered my third grade teacher. So he said, 25 years later, I called up my third grade teacher. And I said, hi, Rabbi so-and-so, why do I remember you more than any other teacher? Imagine getting a call 25 years later, why do I remember you? Tell me, what did you do? And the teacher is like, I don't know, I just loved, I just love, I loved all my kids. So he says, I'm going into education, I'm becoming a principal. What, first he was a teacher, I'm becoming a teacher, what should I know? He said, no, that you have to connect with those kids. you got to love them. They have to feel safe in your presence. 
And then he said, and he looked at me, and he said, and when there's a child who is causing you migraine headaches, who is giving you aggravation, who is making your job difficult, make sure that your love towards him is double the amount of the love towards the other kids. And I said, Rabbi, why double? Why not equal? He says, because last year's teacher probably hated him, and you have to compensate for that. So, you know, this was a very, very powerful... So, you know, you say, we, yeah, sometimes, listen, you also have to remember that some schools have the best of intentions. But, you know, they have classrooms, they have structures, they have curriculums. And it's so important for parents to focus on the individual needs of your child. And don't surrender to social conformity. Sometimes people will keep their children in the wrong schools and in the wrong environments just because everybody is going to that escalator, back to the escalator in the airport. No, your child needs a different escalator. And by the way, when you learn to have empathy and compassion for your own shortcomings, you can have compassion and empathy for your child's shortcomings. What often happens is as parents who love our children, and we're ready to take a bullet for each of them, we also, we also have a hard time seeing them grow into the people that they become independent of us. I love you so much. I want you to be that perfect child who gives us the perfect nachas, who grows into that exceptional child. And that we take it personal. And my child is now letting me down, letting our family down, letting the Jewish people down, letting God down. And it's very, very difficult for us. And we're not really tuning into that child as an individual soul sent down by God to this world and giving me, who gave me the privilege to polish the diamond, but not to own the diamond. When I make it not personal anymore, when it's not personal it's very different. The Baal Shem Tev once said something so powerful. He said, when you pray to God for your children or for anything else, you're not praying for your children. You're praying for Hashem's children. If your children are missing something, it's actually God who's missing that. Because every child is a piece of Hashem. So instead of looking at it, my child has to be this and this way, where there's a lot of my own insecurity there. If I could get my own insecurity out of the picture and say, no, this is God's child, and this child is struggling with something, please help this child be able to find their beauty, their soul, and help me be able to be the ambassador of love and light and hope and connection to fulfill my role here. It, It just allows us the freedom to be able to breathe while we're raising our children. Because if parents stop breathing, a mother once told me, from the day my child was born, I've been holding my breath. And it's now 30 years I'm holding my breath. You can't raise children and create a normal marriage at home if you're holding your breath. So we have to be able to breathe, (laughs) to breathe and hold our breath for a few seconds, but then exhale. and, And only then can we raise our children from a place of, of inner confidence and inner wholeness. It's hard. That differentiation is hard because, you know, we project ourselves on them and some of us, we just want the nachas. You know, I want the nachas. <laughs> I want the nachas. And you know what? And also, some, I feel like also nachas. some parents, and some parents genuinely don't know. They are conflicted themselves. And I guess uh, the answer can be connection. Sure. If they're really connected to their, maybe the connection can promote like, 
you know, a change in like knowing what to do, but so, you know, there's a conflict between values, you know, personal values and what's right for the child. And maybe the school might conflict with the values. So there's so much, so many conversations that need to be had. It's really, you know, that's what they say. Being a parent is the hardest job in the world because you really have to, you know, you have to know each child is different. You know, you, you have, when you have six children, it's your, your six different raising, parents. But, yeah. Raising the ch- a child is the hardest job in the world. It's also the most important job in the world. Which is why, why it's almost a comedy when feminism started to dismiss motherhood <laughs> as like, yeah, you know, that's for the old women who didn't believe in themselves and could not become lawyers and judges and real estate tycoons and, and business women and running companies. It's like, great. We love when women run companies and become lawyers and doctors and judges and take over the world, you know, but to dismiss motherhood it's the most faithful vital crucial hardest job in the world it's harder than being a ceo running three thousand employees raising that child and this job god has entrusted to mothers and to fathers but mothers have a special touch as we all know they're the one who they're the ones who carry the children and give birth to them and and and, and create the ambiance in the home a woman takes a house and turns it into a home Woman takes a man and turns him into a husband and into a mensch. The bottom line is that it's, it's, we have to realize how faithful the job is, but not become paralyzed, not become paralyzed in this, in this situation, but rather have the courage and, and, and the, the important, uh, uh, discipline to work on ourselves. I would say that a major part of educating our children is really educating ourselves. Um, because so much of it is about me. It's about us. Uh, it's allowing our children not just to be raised by us, but also allowing ourselves to grow in maturity, in humility, in vulnerability, in self-awareness through our children. When I change my own dance in the house, you know, every every member in the family has a dance. That's how it works. <laughs> every one of the siblings, everybody has a dance. And when I change my position... Everybody changes their position. It's just organically how it works. <laughs> so, so that's, that's really where I have to look at, you know, don't stop changing everybody else's dance. You know, can I start changing? Can I start changing my own dance? Another important thing is the issue of discipline with, with a tremendous focus on love and understanding. I think a lot of parents are afraid of discipline because they're traumatized by the way their parents discipline them or their grandparents discipline their parents. I think it's a terrible mistake because discipline, when it's done in a loving way, is actually a testimony to emotional presence. Um, I think just as children are traumatized when the house is a boot camp and there's no affection, there's no warmth, there's no love, they're equally traumatized when the house is what's called a place of anarchy and, and Hefker, where there's absolutely no boundaries, there's no safety, they don't know who they are, they don't know what's good, what's bad, what's allowed, what's not allowed, they don't feel, they don't feel their parents in a visceral way. So I think it's so important to understand that at a young age, as children are growing up, loving discipline that comes from a place of, of understanding and connection and empathy is, is a blessing. It's not something to be afraid of. It's true. And, and that requires self-awareness. Back to what we were talking about before is it? And the discipline and that the discipline is not coming from impulsiveness. 
and insecurity and anger and, and vengeance. Like, I'm going to teach you who's the boss and, 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 and I'm, I'm letting out my frustration on you. But it's coming from a place of connection, a very deep connection. The Baal Shem Tov said, when you're angry, do not speak for 61 minutes. It's very wise advice. I have seen people during anger, they got divorced, they sold their home, they sold their business, <laughs> they disowned their children. Yeah, I once heard a father tell his son, he got angry at him, I'm not making a bar mitzvah for you. I told the guy, wow, you get a PhD in brilliance. Great threat to your son. I'm not making a bar mitzvah for you. That's wonderful. Brilliant, right? I know of a father who didn't show up to his son's bar mitzvah because he was angry at him. The son married out of the faith. The bottom line is never discipline from a place of uncontrolled impulse and anger. I can get angry, but I have to be aware that right now I am angry. (laughs) And it's not the time to discipline. You know, go eat a falafel, go eat cheesecake, uh, go to the gym, much better, you know, do 70 push-ups, do, do 200 chin whatever it is, you know, bench, <laughs> bench press 220 pounds for an hour and come back. That's fine. That's fine. If you got to go binge, go binge. There's enough condition happening. But the bottom line is we have to educate from a place of self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. You were, yeah. you were saying we want nachas. Um, but like, you know, with your thought, uh, which is very powerful that our children are Hashem's children, they bring us nachas just for that alone. So they should continue bringing it us so nachas. Important. It is so important. Of course, we all want nachas and we bless each other. That You should have nachas. It's, it's a classic, timeless Jewish blessing. But it's important to define what nachas means. Nachas means you should have the nachas from knowing that your child is becoming the person he or she is supposed to become. Nachas is about tuning in to the amazing soul that your child has, to the amazing beauty, and enjoying them just for who they are, and helping them in any way you can to cultivate their strengths. There's a sign I saw in a school here in Muncie, a girls' school. God loves you the way you are, and he takes pride in what you can be. The truth is, that as it says in our sources, that God loves every Jew. That's the un- Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is that God takes pr- pride even now in every person. If you look at your child, any child, you'll see that most of our children, all of them, are trying hard. They're trying hard. They're trying to make things work according to the tools that they have. Can you take pride in your child today, right now? If all I can see is the negative, the bad choices, the obnoxious behaviors, the problems, then ultimately I'm failing myself and I'm failing my children. And and let's say the truth. Let's say the truth. I could send my child to every therapist in the world. What a mother and a father can do for a child, nobody in the world can do for a child. Yeah, it's 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 so much about also, you know, balancing um like the allowing the child autonomy, you know, to be who they need to be, but at the same time knowing when to step in, when to discipline, when to hold back. It's like you said, it's like a dance yeah. for parents, for teachers and educators. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. but it's also yeah. it's also very important to bequeath our values to our children. To be able to show them the potential that we see in them to be able to show them expectations that we have from a very healthy and loving place. 
In other words, to be able to tell my child, you know, what I see in you, in a very real and honest way, but only from a place of very deep connection. And it's so important to be able to spend time with our children, share with them the story of where they come from, who they are, what our family holds dear, to be able to feel that sense of belonging. These are my uncles, these are my aunts, these are my grandparents, these are my, my, uh, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. It's the shared stories of families that are incredible. And there's nothing, there's nothing that replaces family. There's really nothing that replaces family. You know, we all have friends and acquaintances and it's wonderful. But, but family is an incredible gift. And when families are close to each other, when they can support each other, be here for each other, rely on each other, be vulnerable with each other. They say the definition of home is the place that when you come there, they have to let you in. Now, the definition of home is this is your place. This is where you belong. And when families feel that support and connection, it's, it's very powerful. And the greatest antidote today for children's depressions and use of drugs and, 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 and God forbid everything else that comes with it. You know, we can't solve all the problems, but when there's powerful, deep connection, it certainly can avoid a lot of the serious pitfalls that face us all. Do you, th- do you think that, um, you know, the mental health crisis that's going on now, especially amongst kids, teenagers, um, has something to do with a loss of connection? You've been, a, you've been a mentor and teacher for so long, so you've probably been able to see certain shifts, like changes that have happened over time in the state of our mental health. Do you, do you, what, what do you think, um, you know, what do you think is going on? Like, what's your view on the mental health crisis today? And, and has it changed over time? Have you seen any changes happen? It's a great question. So I think one way to address it is, in my mind, it's the story of the Afikoman. The story of the Afikoman, I call, that's what I call it, the story of the Afikoman. The story of the Afikoman that's been a time-honored, mysterious tradition in Jewish homes for hundreds, maybe thousands of years is. We... Split the matz in the beginning of the Seder. We call it yachatz. We take that beautiful, wonderful piece, which is going to be the staple matzah, remembering the Passover offering in the days of the temple, and we hide the afikoman. That's what we do. We hide the afikoman under the couch, in the bookcase, in the shelf, wherever it is, you hide the afikoman under your pillow. And then, at the end of the Seder, towards the end of the Seder, our children go on a search for the afikoman, and they find it, and they expose it. And they show, Tati, Mommy, here's Dafi Kaiman. And of course, they want their prize, whether it's a Lamborghini, whether it's a private jet. In my days, it was a Parker pen, right? And if you were very rich, it was a calculator. And if you came from a simple family, you got a black and white uh, cookie or a bell or, or a cheese Danish. The, the, the rich kids, you know, the, the Rothschild, so to speak, those who were related to Lord Rothschild and the Rockefellers, the Jewish Rockefellers, got a, got a Parker pen. Today, if you give your kid a Parker pen, he probably won't be speaking to you for a couple of years and will sue you. Uh, it's more like a, you know, a private airplane. But the bottom line is that that's the story of Afikoman. Now, you know, the, the word for Afikoman in the 15 steps of the Seder is called Tsofun. Tsofun. Kadesh, Urchatz, Karpas, Yachatz, Maro, Karech, Shulchan, Arech, Tsofun. What does tsafon mean? Tsafon means hidden. Because the Afikoman is hidden and the children expose it. Now, 
Why am I talking with you before Shavuos about the Afrikaman? Because I think that's the story. Here is the key, and I ask you to open your hearts. The story of the Afrikaman is very powerful. What we hide in life, our children expose. What we put away into hiding, our children look for it, they find it, they bring it out into the open, and they say, Mommy and Tati, here is the Afikoman. My instinctive reaction is, No! Put it back! It's supposed to be hidden, soften! Our children look at us and say, Tati, Mommy, Daddy, Mother, if we want to go free, if we want to be able to declare next year in Jerusalem, if we want to finish the Seder, if we want to go out of Egypt, we have to retrieve the Afikoman and expose it. And in my mind, Jewish history, world history, is getting close to the end of the Seder. As we get close to the end of the Seder, when we can all exclaim next year in Jerusalem, this year in Jerusalem, something has to happen. Our children have to find the Afikoman and open it up for us to see. And I think thousands of years, we have been carrying around a lot of trauma. Not our fault. We have faced a lot of trials and a lot of tribulations. A famous professor at Mount Sinai Hospital did studies on epigenetics and showed how trauma affects genes, which means me and my children may be traumatized, not because I have a dysfunctional home, but it may be trauma she or he inherited from generations back. Number one. Number two, some of us sensitive souls are traumatized by existence. You could be the best mother in the world. You could be the best father in the world. Existence for spiritual souls is traumatizing. The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, writes that for a soul which comes from infinite oneness to face a world of fragmentation, to face separation from oneness is painful. It's traumatizing. You have to feel compassion. The pain is not because I was insulted or I was abused. The pain is because existence is traumatizing for a spiritual sensitive soul. And I'm looking for escaping, for escape. I'm looking to numb it. Some of us grew up in homes filled with trauma, in dysfunction, in abuse. Never mind when there was molestation, sexual, verbal, emotional abuse in one way or another. All of these things that we carry in our brain, in our, in, in our, in our souls, in our minds, in our brains, we suppress them or we repress them. That's our afikoma. Our children today are revealing all of it. But they're challenging us to spit it out. They're challenging us to face it, to look at it. And you know what? They are giving us a gift. I know it's painful. It's painful for all of us. It's painful. But it's a gift. It's the gift that will allow us to set ourselves and our world free. It's funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's it's incredible, actually, that so much of what you mentioned in Hasidus today applies in psychology. You see in research something called intergenerational transmission, where something that the grandmother might have suffered from is now being manifested in the grandchild. And it, we, I mean, we see it. It's It's clear. So, I mean, I, that, that is, it's really amazing how things that we've known for millennia today were, are being proven yeah. through, you know, data and research. Not only and that. Also, yeah. yeah. And one of no, the just key, key ideas, 
sorry, you know, just there's just the quote that it reminds me of that, um, you know, mental health is, is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs, which is exactly in line with what you said about really confronting the truth. Yeah, sorry. What, what, the truth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but you have to I'm looking for the, um, <laughs> there's a book, there's a book, it didn't start with you. I'm just trying to remember the author's name, but anyway. It didn't start with you, number one. You know this book? I heard the name. I, I haven't read it. Um, it's important to remember a few things. First of all, that where Judaism can be so effective here is the knowledge that behind all the trauma, there's an invincible core that could never be tarnished or obliterated or damaged. So Judaism will tell you, never be afraid of facing any emotion because you will not melt away into nothingness. Don't worry. You are deeper than all your emotions. You have the power to contain them. You can embrace them because you're a piece of infinity. That is very, very powerful in today's world to help a person navigate this therapeutic process. Number one. Number two, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya in his, in his Hasidic works, Chabad Hasidic works, always emphasizes that the way of dealing with trauma is compassion. Compassion, he says, is that perfect space where I don't surrender to naivete, nor do I have to surrender to dismissiveness and judgmentalism. Compassion means I know exactly what's happening, I'm not naive, I'm not blind, I'm not in la-la land, and yet I don't have to be judgmental. I could simply feel empathy, I could simply feel the pain for a dysfunctional brokenness that exists in a very deep place, that is such a powerful tool. It's called Midas Harachamim. He writes, and I quote, the attribute of compassion is the one attribute that reaches in from the highest space of infinity to the lowest abyss. Such beautiful words. Compassion allows you to link the highest and the lowest without compromising the authenticity of any one of those two extremes. I find that very, very meaningful. Another very important point is, in Hasidic teachings for thousands of years, for hundreds of years, I should say, since the Baal Shem Tov, there was a tremendous focus on the sanctity and the depth of the physical body. To the point that when the prophet Zechariah says that Mashiach, Messiah, is going to come on a donkey, on a chamor, the Maharal and the Hasidic masters translate that as Mashiach is going to be revealed through the chomer, through the physical body. In fact, Hasidus says that when Mashiach comes, the soul will get its sustenance through the body. Not the body will be nourished by the soul. The soul will be nourished by the body because the body has within it an infinite connection to truth that's deeper than the soul. Today, cutting-edge therapy, books like The Body Keeps the Score, and a slew of other books yeah. and lectures, yeah. teaches you that everything is in the body. In fact, in, in, in new forms of therapy that I think are going to be developed more, they're, going to be, they, they're teaching now that you don't even have to sit down and identify why you're traumatized. I don't have to get into explanations. All I have to do is Tune in to my body energy because the body knows everything. The body is a container that holds on to everything that's been going on in my life from the beginning of history, from Adam and Eve's genes all the way till now. 
And if I can embrace the body and allow the body to release it and allow the body to teach me what it needs, my mind and my soul could learn from the body. That is a Mashiach, that's a prediction in Chabad Hasidism about the Messianic world. A consciousness where the body itself becomes the greatest harbinger, the greatest uh, container of truth. So that's also a very powerful idea today, how, how much focus there is on the sanctity and the sensitivity to the physical, to the physical organism, to the body of each and every one of us. And the link between physical health and mental health and how, you know, people who have, yeah, psychological issues lead to actual physical illness. Uh, well, yeah, we were actually going to ask you if you could share in one sentence what have you learned, what you've learned from your experiences over the years. Would that be it? <laughs> are you talking to me, or are you, or are you talking? To no, Rabbi I'm talking Jacobson? to I'm talking to Rabbi Rabbi Jacobson. We had this question because these are very powerful points. We wanted you to share um, with us what you've learned from your experiences over the years. You know, meaning like if okay, so like if you had oh, one. Oh. You know that you you mentioned once in a lecture um, that you you asked uh, Rabbi um, Rabbi Doctor Tursky about uh, you know if, if if he can sum up everything that he learned in one sentence. I found that fascinating because it's it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard um, thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. So I, I guess we thought we'd give it a go, you, right? Giving it a go. Yeah. And you know what Doctor Tursky answered me, right? He answered me. Yeah. He said something incredible. He said that the addicts among us are the most spiritually sensitive among us. He said, that's what I learned in 60 years. When you see an addict struggling with addiction, realize that there is profound spiritual sensitivity here. And because that was not given to this person, he had to numb his pain or her pain through destructive substances. And the only solution is not to dull the spiritual sensitivity. It's to cultivate a very deep relationship with God. That was an incredible teaching that he taught me. I later found it in Likutei Torah, which is one of the works of the Alter Rebbe, who was an ancestor of his, his great-great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi. I an ancestor of Rabbi Tversky? Tversky, yeah. Oh. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, who just passed away a few months ago, Avram Yeshua Heschel, known as Rip Shear, Dr. Abraham Tversky, one of the renowned Jewish psychiatrists of our times who really created awareness of addiction, so basically, his great-great-great-grandfather was a man named Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael of Cherkas, who married the daughter of the Mittler Rebbe, who was the son of the Alter Rebbe. So he's, he's a grandson of the Alter Rebbe. Wow. Wow. Did not know that. Um, yeah. so, so if you were to sum up all of it, and, and you have knowledge in so many different areas, like I feel like we should give you, an, you need to, an honorary um, doctorate in philosophy psychology among many other fields but what would you say you know is like in one as, sentence. A, as a blessing but i would i would say it's really i'll tell you something about how i try to live and teach whenever i learn material material in torah and judaism especially in the mystical parts of judaism kabbalah chassidus hashkafa machshava musr I always try to look at the text anew, (laughs) fresh, without preconceived notions, just to tune in to this information as though I have never learned it before, never said it before, because I want to become alive. (laughs) 
I don't want to repeat mantras and, and lectures and, you know, things that I already taught. I want, I want it to become alive. Even if I'm repeating, if I already taught this. So for me, I try every day to learn, learn new information, but I would like to share two things that I don't know. I'm feeling them now and they, they have always touched me. Uh, one is, I think, it's so important for us, for each and every one of us, on a daily basis, to be able to enter a space of silence, to enter into a space where we emancipate ourselves from all the static, the static of social media, the static of our phones, the static of our brains, that's the hardest, static of our lives, the static of our responsibility, to really go into a space of, of intimacy with our soul, with our own silence, with our own God. And I think if we can tune into that space every single day, it allows us to emerge from that space, seeing ourselves for who we really are. And who are we really? We are ambassadors of infinity in this world. Each and every one of us is an ambassador of love, light, and hope. But to be able to see myself in that way, I have to be able to remove the debris and really tune into my deepest core and resurface into that position. And I think this is one of the greatest teachings of Judaism that touches me, that Every day I want to align my posture with the posture of infinity. You know, in yoga or in Pilates or in personal training or in gym, you know, they focus very much on your posture, right? And I think Judaism focuses very much on our posture, not just our physical posture, but also our emotional, psychological, spiritual posture. What is that posture? So Jacob says it's a ladder that stands on the earth, but its head reaches heaven. That's my posture. That's the posture I want to be. I'm a ladder. I am an interlacing link between heaven and earth. I am an ambassador of divine love in this world. I'm a manifestation of godly energy in this world. I'm a ray of infinity. Therefore, I can be a ladder that always connects to the heaven in people because I could connect to the heaven in myself and yet bring it down to the earthiness of people, because I bring it down to the earthiness within myself. There's another very powerful teaching that comes from Rabbi Hillel of Parich. He was one of the early Chabad masters, a great disciple of the Alter Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. His name was Rabbi Hillel of Parich, which is a city in the Ukraine. He passed away in the 1860s. And he once said, something very powerful. He said, life is about searching and finding your song. Every soul, every soul before it's born has a song. It's it's the song that it loves. It's my favorite melody. When we come down here, the trauma of birth and the challenges of life cause us to forget that song. But you know how when you heard a song once, and it's deep inside of you, and you can't remember it. So you're searching, you're longing for somebody to remind you that song. So he says, all of our journeys on earth are journeys to try to help us remember that song. So I travel the world, 
I get into this issue, I get into this pursuit, I pursue this goal, that goal. He says, really? I'm looking for that song. I'm looking for the song of my soul, which is the song of infinity. It's the song of oneness. He says, we hear a lot of songs. You know, I, a, a, and he gives the metaphor. A person heard a song, it changed his life or her life, but then I forgot it. And every person I meet, I say, sing me a song, sing me a song. And they sing songs. And I pay them money. And I say, it's beautiful. But it's not that song. It's not that song. And then one day you hear that song. And when you hear that song, claim it. Make it yours and own it. And then years later, my wife sent me a clip one day from somebody. Life, I'm sorry, somebody wrote like this. Love is learning the song in someone's heart and then singing it to them when they forget it. And I take that somewhat as a mission statement. Let me always try to learn the song in someone else's heart. And when they forget it, I want to be that person who could remind them of that song. Well, Rabbi Jacobson, wow. May may we each find our song and also be able to tap into and sing with everybody else's song and remind them of their songs too. I, I think that is just a beautiful way to end and, and the, the music beneath the lyrics. <laughs> yes. I, I, yeah. I'm feeling, I'm feeling songs right now. <laughs> I feel the music um, through your inspiration and your words and your, your, you enlightening us and Rabbi teaching Nachman, us. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov writes, he says a beautiful line. He says, every single creature is always singing a song. Every plant, every tree, every flower, Every creature, organic and inorganic matter, everyone is singing a song. He says, but we don't always hear it. And you know, today in the science of botany, the more we learn about plants and trees, we're learning incredible stuff. You know, when a tree is under threat from bacteria or viruses or insects, etc., the tree exudes and releases odors and chemicals to warn the other trees. So there is actually communication. So he says, every everyone is singing a song, but to live life to the fullest, to live a life of alignment is that when I wake up in the morning, I say to God, allow me to hear the song that everybody is singing today. Allow me to hear the song that my wife is singing, the song that my children are singing, the song that strangers are singing, the song that the squirrels, I have some wildlife here in Muncie, the song that the deer and the gazelles <laughs> and I should say soon the beers are going to come out, the song that everybody is singing, allow me to hear that song, allow me to be open to that song, because when we can hear each other's song, we realize that we are each an indispensable note in a cosmic symphony of oneness. We we're all interconnected. Absolutely. Right. Amen, amen. Amen. Um, so for, for listeners who want to know where to find you, um, you have the yeshiva.net. You have a podcast, which we'll include all of this in the podcast notes, but where can we find you if we're looking? Well, I'm also looking for myself. But, uh, <laughs> you're still, fi- so, you're still searching for your song. <laughs> so whoever finds me, whoever finds me, just let me know where you found me. <laughs> and I'll uh, I'll come. I'll you try know to what? Come. I'll try to. <laughs> we should. We'll all. We'll all hopefully remind you 
if we need to, but you know, hopefully you won't need to be reminded. You'll just have your song with you. <laughs> but basically, my my ongoing classes you can find on a website called theyeshiva.net. That's T H E Y E S H I V A dot net. And by the way, Rivka, I think it's appropriate here. It just comes to my mind. You know, I once visited a city called Columbus, Ohio. And I was staying by Ida and David Schattenstein. This is how many years ago, Ida? This is... It had to have been more than 12. Uh, Almost 18 years. You're married for 18 years. So this was probably around 12 or 13 years ago, give or take. I stayed at the Schattenstein home. I had a lecture there at Ohio State University, I think. And uh, after the lecture, I came home. Ida made uh, this most delicious dinner. I could still taste it. Uh, it still lingers in my mouth like the Afikoma. And, uh, and then I sat down with Ida's husband, my dear beloved friend, David, and with Ida. And David says, you know, that lecture tonight was life-changing. I'm like, thank you. That means a lot. And then he's like, but there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? So the problem is, there were 200 people there, or 300 people there. Nobody else hears it. So I'm like, yeah, I know. It happens all the time. You know, tomorrow night I'm going to be in London. And then I'm traveling in a month to Melbourne, uh, your hometown, to Sydney and Australia. And uh, nobody will, the people that are there will hear me. So David Schattenstein took out a check, (laughs) $10,000. He gave it to me. He says, start a website. And every lecture should go on the website. Yeah, I remember so that. Everybody can hear every lecture. And the yeshiva.net was created. And for the first few years, he asked me for the invoice every month of what it costs to maintain it. And he, uh, and he and Ida covered it. So I am uh, eternally grateful to you, Ida, and to your husband for really creating that platform, which now probably has approximately 8,000 classes or lectures. And I always say that double speed was created for me, for my classes, because some of them are long, so you got to do it in double speed. I know you uh, wrote that in the email to me. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's theyeshiva.net. I think that was even David's name. I don't remember. T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A.net. And you can also go to YouTube, good old YouTube, and put in Y.Y. Jacobson, and you'll see also quite a few uh, lectures and seminars. Thank you. And I, I and on Apple Podcasts as well. Um, I noticed there's a and, few podcasts there, and also yeah. many shluchim emissaries around the world that actually share your lectures. So they're not only online and on the internet; they're being shared all around the world in synagogues and in um, in Chabad houses, etc. And I also want to add what you said about um, my husband and myself and how we felt about your, you know, the OSU speech. Every single time, we, we've had the opportunity to hear you a number of times, um, most recent being this past Pesach. Every time we sit and listen to you, we both say we wish there were, even though there are 200 people in the room, we wish more people were here to hear it. Um, so really, like I would encourage, I mean, now we have the opportunity with the yeshiva.net. It's accessible to everyone, one of the joys of technology. So it's really a huge, a Thank huge you. blessing that we can, that, you know, this is there and it's there for our consumption and, and, and for insight and for inspiration. So I encourage everyone to go and check it out. That means a lot. Thank you so much. And I want to uh, bless, I want to bless you, uh, Rivka and Ida, 
to be able to continue to be ambassadors of, as you said, the positive vibes of life, and to be able to bring people a lot of love and a lot of light and a lot of hope and a lot of awareness and healing and uh, and oneness, because I think this is the age of healing. You know, the Afikoman came out of the closet, <laughs> and it's time to look at it and uh, to be able to get out of our Egypt. So a lot of success in your work, both in your personal lives your families and in your communal communal activities and leadership roles that you play today, such important roles, and being role models for so many people. And I want to wish everybody who's with us, who's listening to us, to be able to really, you know, sometimes people say, I'm afraid of my skeletons, I'm afraid of my darkness, I'm afraid of how not good I am and my insecurities. And I would say that there's a much deeper fear that people have. They're afraid of their light. People are afraid of how good and powerful and healthy and wholesome and happy they can be. People say, who am I to be gorgeous? Who am I to be influential? Who am I to have an amazing marriage? Who am I to to change the world? Who am I? I'm just a little schmata. Don't be afraid of your light. Amen. And one who blesses is blessed. Yes, those who bless shall be best. And thank you. Thank you for today for helping us tap into our light, all of yeah. us, our listeners, to us, and for guiding us in the part, in, in that light. In thank that light. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. And good yomtev to you. Good yomtev. Good yomtev to you too. And- okay. Thank Take you. Take care. Okay. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.